Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Tyler. I'm uh, students and young adult pastor here at North Shore. And uh, this morning, our, our passage is, is in 1 Samuel chapter 21. As we're, we're just steamrolling ahead, chipping away at the life of David, one of the... Uh, bigger figures in all of Bible. There's a lot of the Bible about David, and he has an incredible significance uh, to the people of Israel, to how the Old Testament makes sense and fits together, uh, the way he foreshadows Jesus Christ, uh, things we gain about faith and about the gospel. So a, a big, a big important person in, in our history as well. And, and if you don't know how, how some of this works, um, Pastor Scott does a lot of the original research and thinking and, and praying and some study breaks. And so he, he came up with this series. And, and then usually he'll check in with the rest of the teaching team. So he sends out, hey, this is kind of, you know, where I think these are going in the weeks ahead. And, and so he sends out some, some dates and topics and all that. And so we got an email a few weeks ago. But uh, before this started, uh, true story, and, and, and I was looking at these things, and there was one one chapter uh, in just kind of cross-referencing, and I thought, man, that's going to be a pretty tricky one to, to preach. And I thought about sending an email, um, but I didn't. I was like, you know, let Damien good luck or whatever. Um, and that was First Samuel chapter twenty-one. So that's where we are today. Uh, should have emailed, I did not, but here we go. We're gonna we're gonna. Um, just unpack some stuff. This is a weird chapter. It's, it's unusual. And maybe as a little bit of a, here's, here's where we're headed. Uh, I've been wrestling in, in here with a question kind of like, does what you do define who you are? So something like that will kind of help us navigate this. And, and maybe even you just had an immediate response. Maybe there was an immediate yes, absolutely. Maybe there was an immediate no, uh, or, you know, you have no idea or you'd rather not wrestle with this. I don't know. Um, but I think that will kind of, uh, will land somewhere by the end of this. So I'm going to read the first nine verses of 1 Samuel chapter 21. I'm not going to give you any help or context. I want you to suffer the way that I did this week. So we're just going to read and then we'll talk. 1 Samuel chapter 21 Then David came to Nob, which is a place, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, 
which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. All righty. <laughs> Did we do Bibles? Did I forget that? Did they walk through? Okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, those are good to have. Uh, so, so for a little bit of context, uh, this chapter is a continuation of just a couple sentences before the end of chapter 20. This was unpacked for us really, really well last week. And so what, what we're kind of witnessing is the beginning of a significant change in the life of David in his circumstances. And so uh, David's now on the run. And we saw this last Sunday, but this is the beginning of Saul, who is the current king, uh, is uh, beginning to decline. He, he's declining quickly. He is overcome with jealousy because of David. Uh, Saul is now uh, in a position where he's been rejected as king. Eventually, he's living in sin. And so what we saw in chapter 20 is actually the, the beginning of uh, his attempt on David's life. Saul wants David gone. And we looked at the friendship between David and Jonathan, who's actually Saul's son. And Jonathan protected David, gave him a little bit of a sign and a heads up, and David ran away in safety. In fact, that was the very end of chapter 20, right? And he rose uh, and departed. And then Jonathan went into the city. So David is running away from Saul, and this is the very beginning of that. So this is the, the initial quest. David's on the run from Saul, and, and his first stop is in Nob, which is just a little bit outside of uh, where they'd all been staying. And, and he goes to um, the, the, the synagogue or the tabernacle or wherever this was, where the priest was. And so a priest comes to meet David at the beginning of his life as a fugitive, more or less, and says, why are you alone and no one with you? And in verse 2, David said, the king gave me a, a matter, has charged me with a matter. He, he, he gave me a mission and said, let no one know anything about the matter of which I send you. And so David says, well, the king gave me a secret mission. That's not really what happened. <laughs> David's running away. He didn't, he didn't get a secret mission. And so we're, we're going to see the beginning of how David handles being on the run, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, right away, we, we're encountered with, he doesn't entirely know who to trust, what to do, what to say, and so he's actually made up this story that the, the king sent him on his own, right? I'm, I'm under the protection of the king, but uh, that's, that's not what happens, I think this is a, a really honest accounting of King David's struggles. And, and, and just an aside about the Bible in that, if you're going to write a history about your greatest king, 
right? David was, David was the guy in Israel. He, he took down Goliath. David was the conqueror of champions, the, the one who expanded the nation, who de- defeated other enemies and, and made Israel big and, and safe and, and his, um, his laws. And he wrote so much of, of their uh, book of, of worship, of psalms. And he cared for the Ark of the Covenant and, and even began to make plans for building the temple. And he did amazing things for this nation. If you're going to write a history about your greatest king, wouldn't you possibly leave some of this stuff out, right? Not include all of the details. And and if you're the king yourself, if you're David, who presumably has authority and maybe even veto power over an official history that gets released to the public, right? As you're reading, maybe, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't we leave out this, you know, take out chapter 21. Don't put, you know, just put Goliath back in there. Like do something else with this. But the Bible doesn't do that. And I think there's a lot to be gained here. This is a human history, which is so obviously not doctored. It's not edited. It's not dressed up. And two things we learn from that, just real quick, because this isn't the main point, but, but in, in, in stories like this, I think it actually gives quite a bit to the trustworthiness of the Bible. It is honest as a book. It's strangely honest. <laughs> it's detailed to a point that really doesn't make a lot of sense in a traditional history book talking about um, very specific, honest details uh, like conversations about bread and names of people that don't ever appear again and, and places where they're going and, and, and these very real human moments. And I think for us to, to, to be gained theologically, there's something apparently that God wants us to learn from the very unusual details of the Bible, in part because what, what reads as unusual to us a lot of times in a work of literature are actually very unquestionably human things. And we get to experience characters going through things like being hungry and scared and egotistical, and confused, and on and on and on. I think often people are intimidated by the Old Testament, but you don't need to be. It's primarily about people. And so this chapter in particular is about the fact that David didn't know what to do. And when people don't know what to do, they often act foolish. So we get to see this in this book that, that has very little regard for the reputation of some of its greatest heroes. It just gives it to us as it is. And I think there's a lot to be gained from uh, the divine word of Scripture. So if you think I'm overdoing it by just a couple uh, sentences and verses about, about lying to a priest and about bread, well, David's, David's not done here. Um, he continues and and I wanted to jump down to verse 8, uh, where they're, they're having the second half of this conversation here. And David says to Ahimelech, uh, all Master Chief style, right? I need a weapon. Um, for the four millennials that got that, props to you guys. Um, 
right? Have you not here a spear or sword at hand? He doesn't have a weapon. Then he says something fascinating. I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. Now, I, I can't imagine a scenario where if you're going to go on a very long and apparently somewhat dangerous secret mission and he's on foot going to a place far away, what kind of haste uh, superseded the, I don't know, three minutes it would take to go get your sword? The king sent me on a secret mission and it was so important I have no weapon. He's still making stuff up. This, this is not why he's on the run. And so he's continuing to kind of spin the story. And they have this brief conversation about weapons. And then uh, obviously you, you noticed it. The priest said in verse 9, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here. I don't know why Goliath's sword was there. That was where they decided to keep it. But the priest says, well, this, this is all we got. Goliath's sword, and, and, and it ends, right? Uh, the end of verse 9, David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Well, David already beat the guy with that sword. Um, and now it's his uh, source of comfort. You can just tell David is acting strangely. We're going to comment more on that sword in just a second. And so he takes it, and I want to continue, and we'll finish the chapter. So this is verse 10. So he's going to take... Uh, Goliath's sword, and the story continues, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is a city of the Philistines. And the servant of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David uh, leaves that first place and he crosses the border. He runs to the land of the Philistines, which is Gath, which is from 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 4, Goliath's hometown. That's where he was from. And so they recognize him. <laughs> Wait, what? wasn't that the guy? Like, that's him, right? And so David is, and I love that, uh, much afraid. David is scared. He's afraid and pretends to be crazy. Here's the two big shocks of this encounter with both Ahimelech the priest and, and then continuing onward. I think the two biggest shocks about this whole chapter to me uh, were one that he was that excited about Goliath's sword. And the song that used to celebrate his great victory 
which wasn't actually his great victory, but God's. And we saw that, right? That was in verse uh, 11. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. That's not the first time we've seen that phrase. They sung that after he killed Goliath. It was this moment where the people exploded with praise for David. So that used to be his like uh, battle cry. Now it's making him afraid. Oh shoot, they recognized me. And he goes into hiding and, and, And so these two things, he's so excited about Goliath's sword and at the same time he's terrified of of the song about his best victory, the time he was most in step with God. And I think why it shocked me was the realization that David's now gone from doing whatever it took to defend his Lord to doing whatever he can to defend himself. It wasn't that long ago. Think, think about this. The battle with Goliath, that was just four chapters ago. <laughs> and we're not skipping years and years. This is going quickly. And, and it was just a little while ago that, that little David marched out and said, who is this guy that defies the armies of the living God? Where did that guy go? This is, this is real struggle. And what's so fascinating to me personally is, is how quick it happened. It's not that long ago that David was on a spaceship trajectory to success. Right? He's defeated an incredible opponent. He's been anointed king by God's prophet. He's been confirmed by God. He has overwhelming uh, respect and admiration of the people. And now he's lied to a priest. He's convinced himself that the sword of a defeated enemy will save him. And he's pretending to be insane in order to escape his enemies. I think since this chapter is being incredibly honest about David, we could be honest with ourselves for a moment. Have you ever felt out of your depth? You ever, you ever been in one of those situations where things were just getting a little out of control and it's hard to keep up with what's going on and things are spiraling and emotions are, are swimming? Have you ever felt out of your depth? I was in Spokane uh, for a significant period of my life with college and graduate school and all that. And uh, one of the big differences between Spokane and anything that I've experienced here uh, was a little bit of the wildlife. And two different times when I was in Spokane, I had an encounter with a moose. Never had that here. Uh, the first one was just kind of, it was the second one, but it was the more enjoyable of the two. Uh, I got in my car and I, I was driving up to campus and I'm driving up the hill and running up the hill next to me. I look over, it was a moose just coming up the sidewalk. I was like, that's pretty weird. And I drove past and went over, parked on campus, got out of my car. Here comes the moose running through campus. Uh, and it just went through and off it went and we all went to the class and we we're like, how many of you saw the moose? We're like, that was crazy. But the other time, um, the other time was a bigger deal. There was actually, the, the moose made Spokane news uh, a number of years ago because it was just running loose in urban Spokane, jumping over people's backyard fences. 
They are as big as you've heard. Uh, they're enormous. And so the reason it was on news was it was, please stay inside while we figure out what to do and how we're going to contain and relocate this moose. Uh, it, for, for instance, it barely had to jump over people's backyard fences. Uh, but you didn't want somebody un, unbeknownst walking outside and startling a moose. And it was clearly in the wrong place and afraid and didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, we, we have this awareness that animals, when cornered, uh, often behave erratically and unpredictably. And the more large or poisonous the animal is, the more care you should take. Because if you scare an animal, you don't know how it will act. I think if careful, if not careful, people can kind of function the same way. There was a quote I really liked uh, from a commentary in just kind of uh, study and, and preparation and, and in response to David's behavior and, and just his, the situation he's found himself in this chapter. One of the commentaries said, when faith wavers, one can lose focus on God and act in ways that contradict one's creed and experience. I really like that, but maybe to rephrase it for all of us that talk normal, uh, sometimes if you get scared, you forget God and do weird stuff. Those are those moments when you've probably most strongly felt that what you were doing wasn't who you really are. Right? That the way you acted, something you did or said or whatever it was, was not who you were. And those come in a whole host uh, of different ways. Right, an outburst of anger, a slip back into addiction, using words to twist reality. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, I was trying to process what, what exactly this, this is, and, and I think what it is for all of us, right, an unredeemed defense mechanism is probably always going to be something sinful. Right, if we're not with God in those moments, those knee-jerk reactions, those very human responses, those things when God's not in control, but my, my human nature is, um, those aren't my best responses. And those are the moments when we have to deal with, how did I do that? Why did I do that? I don't know what your defense mechanism is. Uh, mine tends to be anger. And as much as I love sports, I have to be really careful and intentional with where and what I play. Uh, because when I feel threatened, in any kind of even silly perceived way, uh, I have regretted a lot of things that I've said in the spirit of competition. I've regretted a lot of the things I've said in my house in the spirit of self-defense. I think if your conscience is intact at all, those are the I cannot believe I just did that moments. So what do you do with those mistakes, outbursts, backslides, whatever you want to call it? It can be massively disorienting, can it not? Because we, we tend to believe that the entire point of being a Christian is that we don't do that stuff anymore. So what happens when you do it again? And we could boil it down to just its simplest truth. 
which is just, have you ever done anything that you regret? And I'm not talking about like you ordered the wrong thing at the restaurant and you're like, I wish I picked something else. But like, have you ever, you know, honestly, have you ever done anything where looking back, you say, I, I wish I hadn't done that. And if I had a chance, I would say something different or I would do something different. Anyone ever been there? Look, you're not alone. There's a bunch of us who have a moment when your actions contradicted what you believe or who you wish you were or who you believe yourself to be. What do we do with that? I actually think there's a, there's a better question, um, which is what does Jesus do with that? So I have found myself there. What next? Right? What, what, where, is, where does this leave me and God? Jesus actually had to deal with that on a pretty real level. Um, And I wanted to take us to a a short story in one of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 26. You can follow me if you want. We have this on screen as well. And this is is towards the very end. This is uh, one of the last chapters in Matthew. And so this is just hours uh, at the end of Jesus' life. And this is going to be about one of his 12 disciples. This is about Peter. So verse 69, and now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Jesus is on trial. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And so here's the conversation, and and it's very simple. You were with Jesus, and he said, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And and here's the self-defense, because in that that moment right there, that evening, it it was pretty dangerous to be associated with Jesus. Jesus himself was on trial for being Jesus, and to be associated with him had a very, very real element of risk. And so three times somebody says, didn't you know that guy? No. Aren't you like, you know, one of his friends? Mm Mm-mm. Three times he can't even bring himself to say, I know Jesus. And then the rooster crows, which was something Jesus predicted, and he went out, and it says he wept bitterly. Now, I, I was asking of this, of this passage, is it, is it possible that Peter had an authentic faith in Jesus Christ? I think he did. I think Peter had a, a real faith in Jesus Christ. But like David, he also, in a matter of moments, went from doing anything he could to defend Jesus, 
right? He's the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was getting arrested. He's the one that pulled out a knife and started slashing and cut off another guy's ear. You can't take Jesus. I will do anything. Hours later, he's gone from that to doing whatever it took to defend himself. And so I'd ask the same question of David in our chapters. Is it possible that David had an authentic faith in God? I think he did too from what we've read about him so far and what we'll continue to read about him in in the rest of this series, in the rest of Scripture. At the end of the Gospels, after Jesus has risen from the dead, spoiler alert, he takes Peter aside uh, and, and he has a conversation with just Peter, right? He has a few moments with his disciples and he's preparing them to lead the church in his absence. And so in one of those, he has a conversation with, with Peter and, and takes him aside and three times tells him the equivalent of, go and be who I made you to be. Do what I called you to do says it three times as if to step right into Peter's biggest three mistakes of his life and to say, it's okay. Try again. Do better next time. The reason that I have preached this chapter in 1 Samuel this particular way is because I was uh, stonewalled by another part of the Bible. If you weren't aware, David, or our David, he's the one that wrote most of the Psalms that are in, a, in our Bible. He had a bit of a gift in music and poetry, and so he wrote out a lot of his prayers that were used as worship by the people of Israel. And, and some of them have a little bit of an inscription at the top of the Psalm. It's smaller and in italics. So if you're not paying attention, you've probably subconsciously skipped that. It's like, where's verse one? But... Psalm 56 is one of those, and, and it's in this Bible here. It's also in your apps. Um, they have these little subheaders, and Psalm 56 says, says this, and it's fascinating. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, that would be like the tune that this was sung to, a miktam, that's a type of a song of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So this, this psalm that I'm about to read, Psalm 56, uh, was from the time of 1 Samuel chapter 21 that we just read. And here's what David says. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And I wanted to show you something on screen here. Here's, here's kind of the chorus of this psalm, right? It's much like ours. They repeat the most important part. Verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he says almost the identical thing later in verse 10 and 11. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I wanted to wrestle with this idea of what do you do when what you believe fails you? 
in terms of what you choose to do because these, these words seemed incompatible to me. It says that this was written when the Philistines grabbed him in Gath and he pretended to be insane. He says, I trust in you. No, you don't. <laughs> what are you talking about? These don't make any sense. And I sat with this for a long time. I'm still not done, but it's Sunday and I had to get up here and say something. <laughs> so this is what I got so far. On the one hand, is it hypocrisy? We're just saying things. I mean, you know, I could see where that comes from. And, and honestly, that's where I started with this. That was, this felt incompatible to me. I had to ask that question. I think it's a legitimate question. How does this, how does this make sense? How does this line up? But I think you can argue that it's not hypocrisy. Maybe a better question, and, and where I've begun to land on this, can this be your prayer even when things aren't going well? Can this be your prayer even when you aren't going well? I, I wanted to end by, by walking through um, just three or four truths that I gained from what I think is a pretty complex scenario that David and Peter have both landed themselves. And so just some takeaways for, from this, this whole dynamic, this tension. I think it is good for us to be prepared that something like this can happen. Where what you believe does not line up or what you do doesn't line up with what you believed. This probably has happened and the opportunity for it to happen again will come. It takes frustratingly little for self-preservation to kick in. And then, man, can't believe I did that. So where do we go from there? Now, on the one hand, this is important. You are probably familiar with the fact that, that for unbelievers or for people who've walked away from the faith, this, this type of a discrepancy is, is significant. It's really hard to get past. It feels incompatible. It is worth paying attention to. This disconnect between faith and action is one of the biggest roadblocks for, for people. A watching world says they believe that, but they did that? Well, yeah. A little bit. Which is why this next bit is the most important part. Get back to Jesus. It's called repentance, and it's not something you do one time at a prayer to believe in God for the first time. It is what we are called to daily as Christians, and I think it is the act of recognizing that what you believe and what you just lived out didn't line up. They're not in alignment, and you need to get back within the will of God. Now I want to make a very important distinction uh, 
I think in both David and Peter, we see somebody who's fallen short of the standard of God and they work hard to get back. We get this front row seat to kind of that wrestling, right? Immediately, Peter recognized what he did and he just cried. That's not who I want to be. That's not me, God. And in David, I, I don't know if he wrote that while he was in captivity in Gath or if he wrote it right after. I, I don't know that timeline, but it, it's about this event and he's wrestling. God, I want to trust in you. Even while he's very much doing stuff that don't look like trust in God. Now, they sinned and they did not want that to define them. And that's, that's markedly different than saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And I also believe that it is okay to be sexually active outside of marriage. Or yeah, I'm team Jesus, but I don't believe anyone who says I have an anger problem and I have no interest in, in listening to anyone and I have no interest in changing that. There, there is a difference between the moments and the acceptance of a, of a lifestyle. Every, every sin places us in front of a, of a couple doors, I think, a couple choices. You can choose for that thing to define you. I am that. I am blank. I am angry. I, whatever. This is the way it is. Or every sin places you in front of a door of repentance that leads back to Jesus Christ, saying, I don't want that thing to define me. That's not who I want to be. I don't believe that's what God has for me. And the good news is that door is never closed. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you will ever do. There is no amount of choosing the wrong path that closes the door of repentance back to Jesus. It is always wide open. The only failure is to not get back up, to not turn away, to not run back to Jesus. And so I think then we can land on something like the words of Psalm 56, even when my life doesn't reflect that. And I think what we're seeing actually is this is authentic Christianity. It is far better not to sin. It is far better to live within the will of God. It is far better when right belief results in right living. But if you do mess up and it leaves you in turmoil, wishing to be better, wishing to be back with God, I think you're doing it. I think that's what Jesus has asked of us. That is what it means to be Christian. We are not perfect people. We are people trying to get back to Jesus and back to Jesus and back to Jesus. So maybe to answer our, our very initial question, does what you do define who you are? Well, in a sense, I think it absolutely does. But we're not, we're not defined by our mistakes. We're not defined by our sins but if you make that choice, if you turn and come back to Jesus, we are defined by our identity as children of God. 
I want to invite the worship team out. And, and as we reflect on this through song and, and just in your own mind and in your prayers with God, we'll also have, again, our, our prayer teams up at the end. Our worship team has been incredibly faithful in having uh, people available for prayer during closing songs and after the service. And, and I want to encourage us, if, if there is something that God has spoken to you that what you uh, do or what you have done has not been in a line with what you believe I would encourage you to take that step in prayer and to confess that and just let God step in and and help fight that battle. Um, So let's bow our heads, close our eyes as as we kind of wrap this up here. God, we, we thank you so much for your word and for your offer that is here for us. You are eternal You are unchanging. Your mercies never end. We are limited. We are fragile. We consistently break even our own rules. But God, will you help us in that fight back to you? Thank you so much that you've never walked away from us, that there is always and daily a need and an opportunity and an open hand to turn in repentance to you. And I I pray this morning, God, that that you would bring uh, to mind, bring to heart where that is that we have wandered, that we have drifted. Would you wrestle us back to you, God? Do not leave us out there, but draw us close. May we be people of repentance that a watching world can see the glory it is to receive your unending forgiveness in your holy name we pray